I'm Stacey Cabrera, and this is Fill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the ways philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. My first year of college, I was in an intermediate writing course, which was a basic prereq for a lot of different majors, but obviously especially for English. We did a lot of different writing assignments in a couple of different formats, things that were qualitative, things that were quantitative, and our final paper for the class had to incorporate an element of something in our major study, as well as a cross-curricular area of some sort. But looking back on that, I probably could have been a lot more inventive. I probably could have chose a lot more interesting sources than I did. Uh, But the inquiry I ended up choosing to pursue was looking at Shakespeare's Hamlet through a Freudian lens. Little did I know at the time, there was a huge market for that kind of thing back in like the 60s and 70s. Psychoanalytic literary criticism is the thing in itself, and it's all based on Freud's psychological theories as applied to character studies in any kind of genre. So anyway, to prepare, I picked up a book of Freud's theories. It was a bunch of snippets of a few different works. Uh, Things like Interpretation of Dreams were in there. His infamous theories of sexuality were in there. Ultimately, I think I ended up diagnosing with uh, some kind of melancholia or something like that for Hamlet, although I forget. It's been a really long time since I've pulled up that paper. For good reason, it wasn't very good. Uh, But it was an interesting foray into Freud. Uh, Freud is just one of those guys I think we all hear about and then we all think we know him, Uh, but none of us can really attest to how or where or why we got there. Uh, I honestly think... um, I don't even remember, honestly, the first time that I came across him. It might have been connected in some way to uh, Oedipus Rex, but unlike my current students who all read Oedipus Rex or Antigone freshman year of high school, I don't actually think I started reading it until college or even when I had to teach it. So I knew the story, though. It was definitely from some secondhand situations, obviously, but my only guess as to how I got exposed to Oedipus and then probably directly to Freud at that point would have been my senior year in AP English. Great class, great teacher. In fact, a lot of my early interest in philosophy probably can be directly related back to that class. So in a tangential way, thank you, Mrs. Chari, for my entire life pursuit. Uh, It's really amazing how one person can unknowingly and unintentionally just do that for you. So in a lot of ways, Freud's theories are just an attempt to justify his own psychosis. Uh, in an an attempt to kind of normalize or explain his own personal tendencies and thoughts and actions, which is kind kind of interesting. Um, Much of his success is attributed to a situation involving a woman that they've codenamed Anna O, who was exhibiting all kinds of physical symptoms that didn't seemingly have a physical cause to attribute them to. He and friend and mentor Dr. Joseph Brewer finally saw a breakthrough in Anna's symptoms after they got her to talk about some of the traumatic experiences of her life, uh, things that she had likely been repressing, and then the situation became the basis of the treatment they called the talking cure. And while Freud's theories have been pretty largely debunked over the course of time, uh, at least in the psychological health and treatment area, uh, there are still a lot of places where Freud's works have made cultural impact, but probably none more than in arts and literature. Like I said, literary critics in the 60s and 70s especially, for whatever reason, had just an affinity with psychoanalysis, which spawns from Freud's theories of personality. So you have the id, the ego, and the superego, which all manifest different aspects of one's personality, and a lack of them causes, uh, a lack of balance in those causes psychosis. The id, or impulse drive, is driven by the pleasure principle. 
something that we've already been discussing in previous episodes in relation to hedonists, and in particular last week when we talked about it in relation to Walter and Lucy and Burlap. But for Freud, the it is entirely unconscious aspect of our personality. It's instinctive, it's connected to the primitive urges, which makes it important for survival, particularly in early stages of life. So then comes the ego, the part of personality that's responsible for dealing with things in reality. So it derives from the id because it still is about self-preservation, but it ensures that those impulses are controlled and can be expressed and satisfied uh, as much as possible within immediate situations uh, as allowed within time and space and resources. So here you've got a little bit of the hedonistic calculus sort of thing that's common to utilitarianism. Cost-benefit analysis and which ways the desires and the id are analyzed through the ego in order to maximize the pleasures from a variety of different angles. So immediacy, potency, long-term versus short-term, tangential consequences, etc. And then finally you have the superego, which is environmentally derived from social interaction and provides individual... Uh, consciously with guidelines for judgment and what's considered civilized behavior. Again, the goal is balance, which is difficult, and we know this, especially since often social rules and society fluctuate from place to place, and then if we're moving from social circle to social circle, which causes us as individuals to constantly be aware or have to be aware of the environmental evolution of our choices, is a lot to think about. So when you get characters like Hamlet and Shakespeare's play who have to contend with a bunch of different intellectual and moral elements, have to rationalize their choices in relation to a variety of different stimuli, their own internal desires, feelings, and complexities, it's no wonder that the response is often in action. I've said in previous episodes, utilitarianism even leaves decisions often quite difficult to make in the same way and can lead to inaction as well. Jeremy Bentham's hedonistic calculus seems, at least on the surface, easy enough. You weigh the likelihood of pleasure against the likelihood of pain, and voila, the decision's made. More pain than pleasure? Don't do it. More pleasure than pain? Go for it. Yeah. But (laughs) that's a pretty shallow version of utilitarianism, which unfortunately you see a lot of that these days, and people attribute that shallow kind of decision-making back to utilitarian philosophy. But no, there's a lot more to utilitarianism than that. Propinquity, fecundity, duration, extent, there's a lot to think about. How intense will the pleasure be, and for how long will it last? Is even all that likely to happen as a result of my choice, or will I totally be wrong in how I'll feel? Is the pleasure going to dissipate so fast that all the pain will outweigh it later on? How many other people are likely to feel pain, even if I feel a lot of pleasure? How much will my causing their pain eventually bring them to cause me pain later on? There are a lot of decisions to make here and a lot to consider. And in a warped butterfly effect of choices, you'd have to consider far more than can realistically be considered here. So at what point should you stop thinking about the consequences and then finally act? Especially if your action has to come quickly, how much careful consideration of all of that can you be expected to make? It seems that it has to be more than shallow immediate consequences. But it can't be so far as all time, forever and ever, amen. As they say in the internet world of memes, ain't nobody got time for that. So to return back to Freud's influence on literature, it's very easy to see places where people have relied upon that theory. Not just in the writing of their fiction, but also in the analysis of it. Many of Freud's works predate Huxley's, including his three essays on the theory of sexuality, which was published in 1905, 
So it's conceivable that Huxley might be making specific reference to the Oedipus complex in his works, although you see it directly being said about burlap, as we looked at in the previous episode. So it's no wonder that critics, though I don't know why it was so popular in the 60s and 70s specifically, why they decided to make explicit use of Freud's um, theories while analyzing Huxley's characters. But like I said before, I absolutely have to contest the application of it to Spandrel. So allow me to submit my thesis here as I intend to prove the falseness of those claims over the next few episodes. Spandrel, though, he seems to be a nihilist whose existential angst comes from a warped Oedipus complex. I'm going to submit that he is rather an absolutist who is failing to see the absurdity of his ideal. Instead, I intend to say that he is more akin to the demonic of Kierkegaard's philosophy, an ethicist who's attempted to rehash the aesthetic despite meeting the paradox of the absolute, of failure to make the leap of faith. Look, I can see, though, where the critics get the whole Oedipus complex thing. You've got Oedipus Rex, a play written by Sophocles way back in the height of Greek classicism in which a man, Oedipus, is told by the oracle at Delphi that he would go on to bring shame and havoc by killing his father and marrying his mother. To avoid his fate, he runs away from home, where he's accosted by a royal and his caravan. In self-defense, he kills the whole lot and keeps running to the next place, and then he finds out that he's overthrown the king and then marries the queen. Two kids later, all is fine and dandy, and then all of a sudden, things get kind of weird. Weird plagues, omens... And the cryptic, or really not-so-cryptic, words of the prophet Tiratius, who in essence tells Oedipus, Hey, those people you think were your parents? Nah, those were your adoptive parents. You were given up at birth because the prophecy foretold that you would do exactly what you did. So, regardless, you can't escape fate. Once he stops running, figuratively and literally from the truth, and takes responsibility, Oedipus gouges out his eyes, of course, the first thing you do of all the punishments. And then he sets things right and goes on to be a wandering, blind beggar himself. All is well, he concludes, and that remark is sacred. Right? The play became the backdrop for one of Freud's theories, in which the child is always competing for the love and affection of the parent of the opposite sex against the parent of the same sex. When it's a male child, it's Oedipus. So why Spandrel? We actually see Spandrel's mother before we see Spandrel in the book, back at the Tantamount party. In fact, we also see her second husband, General Noyle, there as well. And already we understand the relationship to be an odd one, I guess? There's not a good way to characterize it. General Noyle, I think, is one of the most disliked people, and I can't think of a single instance where anyone has anything nice to say about him in the book. Most of them agree with the comment that his face is a capital offense, as Illich goes so far as to make his I-hate-the-rich comment, God, how I'd like to kill them all, directly in relation to a conversation he's had about and with General Noyle after being snubbed by both him and Lady Edward earlier in the party scene. We can to learn right away, even before meeting Spandrel, that his mother's relationship with the general is often strained because of her relationship with her son. As it says, Insolent, bad-blooded young cub, his existence with the general's standing grievance against his wife. A woman had no right to have a son like that. No right. Poor Mrs. Noyle had often atoned to her second husband for the offenses of her son. She was there. She could be punished. She was too weak to resist. The exasperated general visited the sins of the child on his parent. It's pretty obvious right away that the relationship is somewhat toxic, if not downright abusive. 
and Mrs. Noyle's behavior almost immediately confirms it. At the party, she speaks with Lucy for a bit, meekly, asking her to relay a message to Spandrel, since Lucy's expected to see him later on that night at Sabisa's. In fact, not just her words, but her actions here are strange. I've just heard that you're going to see Maurice this evening, she said, but did not explain that the general had told her so only because he wanted to relieve his feelings by saying something disagreeable to someone who couldn't resent the rudeness. Give him a message from me, will you? She leaned forward appealingly. Will you? There was something pathetically young and helpless about her manner, something very young and soft even about her middle-aged looks. To Lucy, who might have been her daughter, she appealed as though someone o to someone older and stronger than herself. Please. But of course, said Lucy. Mrs. Noyle smiled gratefully. Tell him I'll come to him tomorrow afternoon, she said. Tomorrow afternoon. Between four and half past. And don't mention it to anyone else, she added after a moment of embarrassed hesitation. Of course I won't. I'm so grateful to you said Mrs. Noyle, and with a sudden, shy impulsiveness, she leaned forward and kissed her. Good night, my dear. She slipped away into the crowd. It's all very imploring, and it almost seems to have an air of indecency with that level of secrecy that she's asking for. In fact, Lucy comments after she leaves that pretty much sums it up perfectly. One would think that it was an appointment with her lover she was making, not her son. So here, of course, begins the Oedipus Complex. Spandrel's in love with his mother. And that's the bit that the 60s and 70s were raving about. Connect that with later descriptions of her when Spandrel was in his youth, which we see in chapter 13, and then again in 17. In chapter 13, the next day after the party, Spandrel wakes up in the late afternoon in his dingy, dirty, gross house that hasn't been cleaned in months, and he says he likes it that way. So he looks out the window. The foggy day reminds him of his childhood, where, after his father has died, his mother takes him basically on an extended vacation all over Europe. As an only child, his mother is in essence his whole world, especially since he was relatively young when his father died. He recounts a time sledding in Cortina at the Dolomites, where he felt excited and a kind of anxiety intensified his happiness till he could hardly bear it. He describes the scene. They were sliding down on skis through the bare larchwoods. Streaked with tree shadows, the snow was in a, like an immense white and blue tiger skin beneath their feet. The sunlight was orange among the leafless twigs, sea green in the hanging beards of moss. The powdery snow sizzled under their skis, the air was at once warm and eager. And when he emerged from the woods, the great rolling slopes lay before him like the contours of a wonderful body, and the virgin snow was a smooth ski delicately grained in the low afternoon sunlight and twinkling with diamonds and spangled. He had gone ahead. At the outskirts of the wood, he halted to wait for his mother. Looking back, he watched her coming through the trees, a strong, tall figure, still young and agile, the face puckered into a smile. Down she came toward him, and she was the most beautiful and at the same time the most homely and comforting and familiar of beings. I shall never be so happy as this again and his words had been prophetic. After their holiday, Spandrel is sent to an all-boys Catholic boarding school. Being raised a Catholic and still pretty young and obviously coddled and sheltered by his mother here, Spandrel's faced with some pretty interesting realities when he gets there and starts to have some level of freedom. He finds that all the boys at the school are circulating this pornographic book, and so his religious morality and guilt starts to shame him, so when he gets handed it, and his 12-year-old boy curiosity starts to get too strong, he opens and reads it, 
And this is about where the self-flagellation starts for him. And honestly, no big deal. We all do stupid things, and some of us may even hold on to the guilt of those things for a pretty long time, randomly losing sleep several years later about something you did or didn't do that ended up costing yourself or somebody else. But it's the immediate consequence that ju happens just after the event that becomes the moment of major importance for Spandrel. It kind of looks a little like Kierkegaard's moment, but I actually don't think that's it. It's more the occasion for the beginning of his inquiry, but I wouldn't call it the occasion for the choice that gets into the leap of faith. That will come later. This incident is briefly described in chapter 21, while Spandrel is discussing the issue of morality, instinct, and fate with Philip, Illich, and Walter in the second major meeting that happens at Spisa's. Spandrel, meanwhile, was thinking of all those raptures among the mountains those delicacies of feeling, those scruples and sensitivenesses and remorses of his boyhood, and how they were all, the repentance for a bad action no less than the piercing delight at the spectacle of a flower or a landscape, in some way bound up with his sentiment for his mother, somehow rooted and applied in it. He remembered the girl's school in Paris, which is the title of the book, those erotic readings by flashlight under the sheets. The book had been written in the age when long black stockings and long black gloves had been the height of pornographic fashion, when kissing a man without a mustache was like eating an egg without salt. The seductive and preapic major's mustaches had been long, curly, and waxed. What shame he had felt and what remorse. Struggled how hard and prayed how earnestly for strength. And the god to whom he had prayed were the likeness of his mother. To resist temptation was to be worthy of her. Succumbing, he betrayed her. He denied God. He had begun to triumph. And then, one morning, out of the blue, came the news that she was going to marry Major Noyle. Major Noyle's mustaches were also curly. And so, being guilted by his religion, Spandrel puts what for him is very obviously a 2 plus 2 to situation and gets 4, that his reading of the pornographic book was the cause of his mother's marriage to General Noyle, in a way, some kind of direct punishment for his sin. It seems likely to him, too, given that the book was about the exploits of a girl's school by military men, that his perceivedly innocent mother should be defiled in the exact same way. In the midst of the conversation at Sabisa's, this remembrance occasions one of my absolute favorite of Spandrel's phrases. That which happens is intrinsically like the man that it happens to. Fate, actions, direct consequences. But if you're a critic in the 60s and 70s, I mean, all you have to do is pull a few phrases out of these passages, right? There's the landscape described as a virgin woman's bodily contours. There's the mother's beautiful body that is homely and warm. There's the shame that he feels with the pornographic book and his direct competitiveness with General Noyle for her feelings. Definitely in love with his mother, romantically and sexually, as the Oedipus complex might suggest, right? But it isn't for me just the Oedipus thing that I think people often get wrong about Spandrel. But I think counting him as a nihilist might be slightly more forgivable and a little bit more understandable given half the things he says and does. Like existentialism on steroids, nihilism advocates truly in the meaninglessness of everything. Outside of the ancient Greeks, Nietzsche probably is one of the most famous of the philosophers, at least to the non-academic philosophical public. Most people know the name or variations of how to pronounce it, Nietzsche, 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 but probably equally as much for his famous phrase, God is dead, 
and a probably unfounded and radical connection of his works to Nazism, which after he went insane and died and she took over his works, his sister vehemently fought and defended him against those. The phrase itself, God is dead, comes from the work Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is a story dialogue more than a typical expository writing, in which a man named Zarathustra has been wandering for 30 years looking for wisdom. Think Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. And upon descending from the mountains, entering an old holy man's encounter, he claims to recognize the man as Zarathustra. The man asks what he has learned, and then he says that he loves man. The statement is important in that it puts man as the center rather than a holy man who would normally put that as God. He then exclaims that God is dead, which becomes the center of interpretational controversies over Nietzsche's intentions of that phrase. One understanding of his phrase sees Nietzsche as critiquing modern society and their religious beliefs, saying that society has basically killed God by their misrepresentation of his will. Another, and probably the more likely or proper view, is that Nietzsche did not believe in any God, that he had strong atheistic tendencies, and that he felt society would be better off not pretending that there even was one. So later in the text... Zarathustra discusses the concept of overman. In man he shall become the meaning of all the world over nature and order, showing that man, rather than some creative being, must be responsible for himself and his actions, which then define him and reveal his true character. Therefore, man must stray from contentment and mediocrity. The major concept of this particular work in Nietzsche's own criticism of common conceptions of nihilism, he views the world as being unlimitedly optimistic, which actually kind of contrasts what most people believe about things like existentialism and, by extension, nihilism. Because of the views of progress and technology that are brought about by the Industrial Revolution, he saw a decline in values in which science replaced Christianity in explaining reality, and therefore God is dead, but science did not properly ascribe the values. Instead of affirming the importance of Christian values, Nietzsche seeks in his work to find a different foundation, which he places on responsibility and the importance of man. But unlike the Greek classicists, Nietzsche believed that reason, and thus, you know, here's where you connect that to science, reason was the problem, not the solution to living. He does so by laying claim to the ever-changing and constant flux of reality, which means that no universal truths can come from it, even scientific. As a result, sense experience is the only basis for understanding of the world, but it's immediate, and reason then simply distorts it by trying to universalize and get application for those things, which can't exist in a model that's ever-changing like this. So, out goes the idea of morality. So as a result, he claims morality is kind of a joke. It's not doing what it's intending to do, in other words, to exalt the righteous and improve the human condition. Instead, it enforces and weakens by destroying the passions, those things which are natural to us, which he claims then is contrary to nature. One cannot believe in God, Nietzsche claims, and constitute the idea of a will to life. God is self-denial. It's the destruction of the self, and thus living like a dead man. Rather, the concept of an immovable and unchanging God is contrary to that clearly real flux of reality, so instead he advocates a will to basically nothingness. Thus, Nietzsche prescribes a type of moral responsibility to the individual, based not on the limitations of an other, with a capital O, but on one's actions and consequences, what he calls the will to life as the affirming quality of human existence, or the will to power as mastery over one's self-existence. One who achieves this is his other famous philosophical concept, the Ubermensch. 
So when people say nihilism, typically they see violence and destruction. They see Tyler Durden of Fight Club. I mean, God is Dead is kind of a violent idea. It's understandable. It deconstructs entirely world religions that after centuries and eons of creative energy have created. It's like the working of a drawing. Like you're working it for several hours only for somebody to walk by and within a second take a permanent marker and just slash right through it. It's laid to waste. Creativity takes a significant amount more human energy to build momentum. But destruction has a low threshold, and the inertia that follows really doesn't require any effort. So it's no wonder that when we're bored, we often result to violence, as Kierkegaard's A probably rightfully suggests. But if you look at the idea of self-mastery, at the destruction of the norms and regulations which are not created by the self, there's plenty of creative energy there. The destruction is the byproduct of the creation of the self. It's not self-destruction at all, nor is it really physically destructive to others. One can have self-mastery without mastery over other people. He, in fact, makes a claim that regarding the dynamics of master-slave morality, that it's the slave or herd morality that attempts to ensnare and destroy, specifically individualism, by forcing us to have some passively submitted idea to another person's will, that other person obviously being God, so it is, in fact, they, the slave morality, the herd morality, that is destructive. So when we look at Spandrel, we have to be careful. We cannot simply say, oh, he's violent and destructive, must be a nihilist. Because one, that's not how nihilism can really be summed up. And two, it's not even consistent with how he describes or justifies his violence. Which might make that slightly ironic. No one is making claims that Webley is a nihilist, despite the fact that he is violent and destructive. Though honestly, he might fit that bill better than Spandrel. I'm not actually sure I'd give that title to him, either. I'd actually argue it's Rampion. And the more I think about it, the more I think that's actually probably correct. And the more I think it helps argue that Huxley isn't arguing that Rampion is the answer. Yeah, there it is. Rampion isn't correct. You have to read the final novel Island for that, though. And it's not what Rampion advocates. At least not completely, even though I think Rampion's got some of the right ideas about it. It's not wholly correct. And the problem is that it's partial. Partial is what Rampion's been criticizing the whole time. So to return then to Spandrel. If he's not Oedipus, if he's not a nihilist, well then, what is he? Short answer, he's an absolutist. Long answer, he's Kierkegaard's demonic struggling against the moment of his paradoxical call to make the leap of faith using the crop rotation method to deal with the boredom of the ethical standpoint he's using to try to coax God into clear sight without the need for faith, and then failing to realize what faith actually means and requires of him. Instead, he's doubting Thomas with a need for God to smite him in order to prove he exists, and that this whole life he's had was planned out and the consequences for the pornographic book actually did lead to his mother's marriage to General Noyle, and the subsequent destruction of his idyllic vision of her, the pedestal he placed her on, and pretty much his entire route of happiness. He needs God to prove himself for his own misery to be justified, so that he can know he was damned from the beginning, that it was God's plan for him to be what he is, so that he can absolve himself of all responsibility in it, and a fear of randomness and absolute absurdity, so he can continually shake his fist at God for making him this way. As he says, Everything that happens is intrinsically like the man that it happens to. This was his fate. He's owning it. At least that's what he wants. 
Last episode, I introduced Kierkegaard a bit and talked specifically about the first stage of the philosophical development of the self, the aesthetic. A good bit is illuminated by about the stage when you read between the lines of one of the sides of the work either or, specifically from the perspective of A, the asthete, as he justifies his own life endeavors. In the section of the work called The Rotation Method, A specifically argues for how to deal with existential angst that occurs as a result of boredom. This is especially the issue for the hedonistic standpoint, where happiness means pleasure, and pleasure dissipates over time and with repetition. Last episode, we likened A specifically to Lucy, which I still think is correct, as someone who's got to rotate the crop of men she engages with and overpowering. And I put off talking about Spandrel there so that I could do a little bit of that here at length. There are lots of instances, even, where Spandrel in the dialogue recognizes the concept of boredom. In fact, when he is in conversation with Lucy after Sabisa's, after Walter's already left and he makes that whole murderer murdery comment, Spandrel engages Lucy in a conversation about having experiences and for what reasons. He questions her concept of experience and where the thrill comes from, asking her, but if none of them are either right or wrong, what's the point? He's unable to see action as simply done for its own sake without motive or purpose. This is definitely not making him look to be nearly as nihilistic even as her, as he claims. They could never be very exciting if you didn't feel they were wrong. But then he has a realization. Time and habit had taken the wrongness out of almost all the acts he had once thought sinful. He performed them as unenthusiastically as he would have performed the act of catching the morning train to the city. Some people... He went on meditatively, trying to formulate the vague obscurities of his own feelings. Some people can only realize goodness by offending against it. But when the old offenses have ceased to be felt as offenses, what then? The argument pursued itself internally. The only solution seemed to be to commit new and progressively more serious offenses, to have all the experiences, as Lucy would say in her jargon. There are other instances in the text where he has this kind of combative internal dialogue, questioning his actions, searching for the answer he desires in response to them, and the potential that the all of this is for naught. Rampion recognizes this about him as well, that Spandrel is too busy thinking about sins and trying to commit them and being disappointed because he's not succeeding. His experiment with little Harriet, despite its success in the physical goal of destroying her, doesn't really satisfy the internal motivation of the answer from God. Like Kierkegaard's A, Spandrel recognizes the necessity of the rotation method for staving off boredom and the monotony of actions that once brought about some kind of emotional response, either good or bad. Unfortunately, though, like Lucy, Spandrel happens to be kind of stuck in a less sophisticated version of this method, just from a negative position. As A claims in either or, this is the vulgar and inartistic method and needs to be supported by illusion. One tires of living in the country and moves to the city. One tires of one's native land and travels abroad. One is Europamood and goes to America, and so on. Finally, one indulges in a sentimental hope of endless journeyings from star to star. Or the movement is different, but still extensive. One tires of porcelain dishes and eats on silver. One tires of silver and turns to gold. One burns half of Rome to get an idea of the burning of Troy. This method defeats itself. It is plain endlessness. And what did Nero gain by it? Antonine was wiser. He says, 
It is in your power to review your life, to look at things you saw before, but from another point of view. Instead, A advocates a refinement of that method. My method does not consist in change of field, but resembles the true rotation method in changing the crop and the mode of cultivation. Here we have at once the principle of limitation, the only saving principle in the world. The more you limit yourself, the more fertile you become in invention. A prisoner in solitary confinement for life becomes very inventive, and a spider may furnish him with much entertainment. One need only hark back to one's school days, when aesthetic considerations were ignored in the choice of one's instructors, who were consequently very tiresome. How fertile an invention did not one prove to be. How entertaining to catch a fly and hold it imprisoned under a nutshell, watching it run around the shell. What pleasure from cutting a hole in the desk, putting a fly in it, and then peeping down at it through a piece of paper. How entertaining sometimes to listen to the monotonous drip of water from the roof. How close an observer does not one become under such circumstances, when not the least noise nor movement escapes one's attention. Here we have the extreme application of the method, which seeks to achieve results intensively, not extensively. The opening of chapter 17. Huxley reasons everything necessary to understand Spandrel's movement here. Ever since his mother's second marriage, Spandrel had always perversely made the worst of things, chosen the worst course, deliberately encouraged his own worst tendencies. It was with debauchery that he had distracted his endless leisures. He was taking his revenge on her, on himself also, for having been so foolishly happy and good. He was spiting her, spiting himself, spiting God. But yet, the tinge of inner questioning, he hoped there was a hell for him to go to and regretted his inability to believe in its existence. Still, hell or no hell, it was satisfactory, it was even exciting in those early days to know that one was doing something bad and wrong. But yet, this counters the prior claim. Hell or no hell, the inability to believe in its existence sounds like he's challenging it, but yet... How could he then claim to know something bad or wrong without it? He continues, But there is in debauchery something so intrinsically dull, something so absolutely and hopelessly dismal, that it is only rare beings, gifted with much less than the usual amount of intelligence and much more than the usual intensity of appetite, who can go on actively enjoying a regular course of vice or continue actively to believe in its wickedness. Thus, the need for rotation here. He actually almost seems to be advocating against the proposition of A here, that the mental gymnastics needed for A's version of the method, the intellectual memory and forgetting that allows for the perspectives to shift around the same activity, are actually only possible for the unintelligent. That thinking actually makes it impossible to go on enjoying the same thing endlessly, even rotated that way. As he goes on, most habitual debauchees are debauchees, not because they enjoy debauchery, but because they are uncomfortable when deprived of it. Habit converts luxurious enjoyments into dull and daily necessities. The man who has formed a habit of women or gin, of pipe smoking or flagellation, finds it difficult to live without his vices as to live without bread and water, even though the actual practice of the vice may have become in itself as unexciting as eating a crust or drinking a glass from the kitchen tap. Think about obsessions or addictions here. This is why there are such things as gateway drugs that ramp up the potency of the high because the less potent drug done earlier no longer serves its purpose once the body gets used to it. 
only here he's talking about vices of all kinds in general. Habit is as fatal to a sense of wrongdoing as to active enjoyment. Actions which at first seem thrilling in their intrinsic wickedness become, after a certain number of repetitions, morally neutral. A little disgusting, perhaps, for the practice of most vices followed by depressing physiological reactions, but no longer wicked, because so ordinary. It is difficult for a routine to seem wicked, which probably rings to us in some sense true. The first lie you ever told your parents when you were a child was probably a big deal. But then after subsequent, you know, practice at the lying and nuanced versions of lies mixed with truth or what have you, it becomes quite a bit easier. The initial shock of the, of the wrongdoing kind of fades away. Though it is because of Spandrel's requirement of an absolute still, an objective backdrop, that this doesn't work. Kierkegaard's A can continue to rotate perspectives because the perspective isn't fixed. It cannot be fixed. Fixing the perspective on an objective moral truth and goodness and badness takes away the rotation. If the action must be seen as bad, it cannot be seen as anything other than. So Spandrel cannot actively do what A is asking here. As a result, we cannot really call him A in the same way that we could call Lucy A. Her subjectivism makes this possible. Spandrel's absolutism does not. So if he's not A, not an aesthete, not a hedonist, not a nihilist, not an Oedipus, he's complicated for sure. What looks like hedonistic action, a pleasure principle, but a warped and sadistic one, and despite complaining about the boredom and complacency of the once seen as evil actions, he claims satisfaction in that. Because I'm committed to it. Because in some way it's my destiny. Because that's what life finally is. Hateful and boring. That's what human beings are when they're left to themselves. Hateful and boring again. Because once one's damned, one ought to damn oneself doubly. Because, yes, because I really like hating and being bored. It's a reverse aesthetic. For a more descriptive answer about Spandrel's position in the story, I have to back up a little bit. We've been talking about Kierkegaard's aesthetic stage, but as we just discovered, he doesn't fit this. He's too caught up in a need for objectivity, which is base premise of the next step of Kierkegaard's philosophy, the ethical. There are a lot of places in Kierkegaard's works to illuminate this stage, but for the sake of our discussion here, I'd like to take a look at Fear and Trembling. In Fear and Trembling, Kierkegaard's pseudonym, Johannes de Salentio, recounts his feelings about the story of Abraham and Isaac, which can be found in the book of Genesis. In the Bible, Abraham's wife, Sarah, is old and barren. She's failed to produce a legitimate heir for Abraham. But as part of the covenant with God, Abraham is told that he will receive a desired son, but the father of faith at that point, and that his generations will lead to the promised land so long as he follows through with his half of the deal, which includes circumcisions for all male followers so that the contract is physically manifested. All goes according to plan. Sarah has a son, his name is Isaac, everyone's circumcised, and all sides follow through with their deal. Eventually, though, God tempts Abraham by telling him to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son there for a burnt offering. There are some problems with this. You know, there's obvious problems with this. First, it's a logical contradiction. Without his son, how can Abraham have an heir? And thus, how can he have generations and be the father of faith? Second, and the obvious issues of morality here, this is infanticide, it's kind of a big deal. 
He need only look back at some of the other stories previous to him, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and Noah's family to know that there's some issues with the call like this. Third, you've got burnt offerings, which were typical of the faith of the time, but burnt offerings of humans were pagan activities, which it then seems kind of odd for God to actually call for this. Well, in the biblical story, things are pretty straightforward. Abraham does what he's told, but just before he kills Isaac and sets him on fire, God's angel calls to Abraham, says stop, and gives him a ram to sacrifice instead, and then praises you know, Abraham for his unwavering faith in God's promise. Here is where he becomes the father of the faith, for real, for actually having and acting on true faith. Kierkegaard's Johannes de Salentio in Fear and Trembling just cannot wrap his mind around any of that. Which is fair. It's not a situation that's meant to be understood. To understand it would then obviously remove the necessity for faith. Faith surpasses understanding. But of course, De Salentio is someone who occupies the stage of the ethical and needs that to make sense. That's what the ethical is all about. Anything beyond understanding is unfathomable and as a result, complete drivel. And yet, he's obsessed with this moment. What Abraham's story illuminates is something that Kierkegaard explores even further in works like The Philosophical Fragment. Uh, told through there uh, the pseudonym Johannes Climacus, so named after a monk who wrote a work called Ladders of Paradise. Like his pseudonyms often do, Kierkegaard's look at certain words. For example, Climacus looks like climax, a moment of importance or a realization or an epiphany. And it's the importance of the concept of moment that gets further discussed here. Climacus is also a philosopher in style. He uses the Cartesian method to some extent, and there's a ton of references to Socrates and to Greek classicists as the backdrop of this particular enterprise. It's here that we get the concept of Socratic teacher that's discussed in the inaugural episode of this podcast as the person, or really it could be a thing too, that occasions the individual person's moment. The moment being the instance in which the ethical stage fails, and the individual must make that crucial step, inward step, toward that final stage, the religious, in which he becomes the true individual self in absolute relation to the absolute. In Fear and Trembling, Abraham's moment comes when we recognize that the paradox exists in the call to sacrifice Isaac. Here he gets to make a choice. He can decide to rationalize that call on all kinds of ethical or rational grounds, which have lots of different directions it can go, or he can do what he ultimately does and choose to follow the act um, as a result of faith. Fear and Trembling through Johannes de Salentio gives us four different failures to do the leap of faith due to some kind of rational failure. And it's failing in this sense that Kierkegaard in essence coins the term the demonic. In the first reimagining, you see Abraham fail to actually have faith, thinking he has to rationalize the situation for Isaac. To do so, he makes himself out to be an evil monster so that Isaac won't question why God wants him to be dead. It's the wrong mental orientation, despite the fact that he actually goes ahead with the right action. He sacrifices his faith in God and then also sacrifices his relationship with his son so that his son may keep the faith. In the second reimagining, Abraham never even entertains his mindset. To him, God's call is evil, and if he goes through with it physically, he's mentally objecting the whole time. 
The third, he asks God for forgiveness, does not go through with the actions that he's been called to do, and instead thinks that God was testing whether or not Abraham would even do such an evil thing, still somewhat seeing it on, on the act of rationality, that he was called to do a sin, and that he shouldn't have done the sin. So, you finally get the last imagining. Abraham then goes through with the idea, but in a second of doubt, Isaac is there and notices the moment of despair, and so as a result of having been witness to the despair, he too despairs through his whole life, but does so inwardly, and he questions his faith in silence for the rest of his life. Each example of the four here is showing De Salentio himself failing um, to be anything but stuck in the ethical as he's trying to make some kind of understanding of this moment for Abraham. Which is fair, we all would. The problem is, though, that this wasn't De Salentio's moment. It was Abraham's. Some other instance will occasion his own moment. Well, it might even actually be the story itself that occasions De Salentio's moment, but the moment will be different itself. Like Socrates says, or like Plato says, of the idea of recollection, a teacher does not act as both occasion and moment. It is not given in that way, but comes from the inwardness of the individual. One's moment will only be one's moment, and thus it will not be reasonable or explainable to others. In fact, the leap of faith may not even manifest in a way that is physically obvious to anyone else. It would just simply be. And it works in the same way as Allegory of the Cave, where you've got the Socratic teacher who comes back into the cave to then be the occasion for the moment of realization, the epiphany, for the others that were sitting. And it still, in essence, comes down to the choice of the prisoner. The prisoner has to himself get up and then accept and turn around what's happening. While this teacher is the one who releases, the teacher is not supplying anything that isn't already present. So herein lies kind of the same sense with the moment. But I think may, maybe people have more of an interest in philosophies of Kierkegaard that come out of this failure to address the moment. Um, like I've said before, to ignore the call, to rationalize the call for the leap of faith, it results in what's called the demonic. It's sitting back down in the cave. And in that sense, knowing that there's still a fire behind you, but choosing to sit and stare at shadows. It's a recognition, even if it's just per, uh, perceptual, in the fact that there is a beyond of the current standpoint, but a decision to turn away from it, a choice to ignore it. In the ethical, this is the fear of the leap of faith, and a desire to continue to rely upon the rational and the universal, even with knowledge that the rational and universal isn't sufficient. It's using the philosophy not as an ideal, knowing full well that it's not an ideal. This is Spandrel. He operates on absolutist beliefs, on the knowledge of boredom and mendacity, on the fact that God isn't answering him with direct smiting. He wants a universal that is rational and direct, and receives no corresponding call. This is how you get the manifestation of anxiety, of despair, because it's based in a choice. It's just an interesting use here of the ethical. Rather than following objective and doing the ethical actions based on the universal, Spanner recognizes the objective by simply offending against it. It's just as much a validation of the objectivity, though, of its absolutism and the truth of it. It's the necessity of strict determinism. 
it's interesting because Huxley takes the determinism of spandrels to a completely different extreme in a criticism widely read as Brave New World. In Brave New World, Mustafa Mond, who's the world's controller, relates the history of how they developed this new world. The old world, our world, before the fictional Nine Years' War, he claims is wrought with instability, an unending drive towards scientific progress, and an unhappy, fragmented humanity. Like Spandrel, the people of the old, modern world to which he's a part, couldn't really handle leisure effectively, and instead were lost to the pursuit of truth and beauty to which they never really find a gratifying answer. After the Nine Years' War, Mond explains that society as a whole has sought a more peaceful living in which universal happiness was the highest good, although I failed to see a difference in that. But in order to effectively cure the problems of modernity, Mond argues that the New World has completely changed the emphasis of humanity from individualism to a much more social outlook. The stability of society then becomes their central concern, and so several important developments contribute to that. The first step towards that stability was to eliminate human difference, or at least to be able to control the multiplicity sufficiently enough to handle various aspects of living. Rather than fit the job to the person, Brave New World uses scientific technology and bioengineering in, sure, in order to make sure that people, like Spandrel says, are intrinsically like the thing that they do or what they experience. But unlike the characters of Point Counterpoint, the majority of the humans in the New World are content with their philosophies of life, and they don't contradict their natures, as they practically can't help behaving as they ought to behave. In fact, the people of the New World are rather wonderful citizens, by all measure of the term. They do their jobs properly, as they're conditioned to do them, they consume everything economically, and they don't really disrupt social order. They live wonderful lives of pure sensuality, and if they find something unpleasant, though most of that kind of stuff is eliminated, things like birth, death, love, there's always the wonder drug Soma, and then they could just take a holiday from reality whenever they like and come back without so much as a headache or a mythology. However, through their psychological conditioning, any other notion of free will is pretty much eliminated. Brave New World asserts absolute determinism in which the mind is, as Locke would put it, a blank slate at birth and that can be manipulated through proper conditioning to fit the utility of the state. No variables, no headaches, no problems. Everything is as it should be, right? There are characters, even through the conditioning and the production-like births, that still can see a lack of humanity in the system, though it's not perfect. Brave New World presents two examples of the flaws in its own inherent system. You get the character Bernard Marx and Helmholtz Watson, which proves Huxley's opinion that a philosophy based solely on absolutism and a rejection of human experience doesn't result in proper living. Bernard finds himself maltreated by the system, mostly for a physical appearance problem that makes him not fit the social norms, and because of that treatment, he rejects society as viable so long as it's rejecting him. He does what Holden Caulfield does in The Catcher on the Rye, which is effectually to say, you reject me, well, I reject you. Until, of course, society starts to accept him for an event that inflates his ego and his reputation, and then he's all about it. This character is very common in Huxley's works. There seems to be someone at least nearly like this in nearly all of his novels as I've read them. In Point Counterpoint, you see elements of this in both Illage and in Spandrel, which might foreshadow some future events. But the question then has to be, well, why go through all of this? If you believe in the universal, the objectivity, and the absolute, and God is a necessity for your deterministic beliefs, well then why go through all the stupid boredom stuff, and the evil? Why offend against the God's directives, and then risk an eternity of hell? 
Well, honestly, you have to think about the notion of consequence and the way it tends to shake out in our modern world. As in, it, it doesn't. <laughs> or at least it just doesn't as clearly. We all half-jokingly talk about the notion of karma, especially when it suits us to damn somebody else with it. We want karma to exist so that those who offend against us will get their just dessert at some point. But then we also generally conveniently excuse ourselves for some complex circumstances. Think about when you're driving a car and you accidentally cut somebody off or something like that. You wave it off. You feel embarrassed, but hey, you're having a rough day today or something, you know, sometimes you just make a mistake, right? But how much we curse at the person who cuts us off. We call them idiots and carry the negative energy with us as long as we're following behind them until somebody turns or something else catches our attention. We like things to be immediate. Look at our politics. Everything is given in short term because we just can't collectively follow our attention long enough with the complexity or the results of consequences that are drawn out or tangential. It's why we've shallowly reduced the utilitarian calculus to be something almost criminally abridged. So if we act, and act as we think to be good and in harmony with the universals that are so ethically prescribed to us, well then there, where the hell is my good result? When do I get to reap the rewards? Good things seem to happen to the so-called bad people around us, just as bad things happen to people who believe themselves to be good. So doing good things might be longer than our attention spans can handle. Especially if, as Spandrel is set on doing here, we're trying to prove the existence of God. So good is slow. Maybe bad is faster. Does immediate consequence follow from a bad premise? Spandrel seems hell-bent <laughs> on figuring this out. Do bad things, God smites you. Except, he hasn't. At least not yet. So he keeps ramping up the badness, waiting for the consequence to prove God's existence. He's doubting Thomas to the extreme. He does recognize something about this, though, much later in the novel. God's best joke, so far as he himself was concerned, was not being there. Simply not there. Neither God nor the devil. For if the devil had been there, God would have been there too. All that was there was the memory of the sordid, disgusting stupidity, and now an enormous knockabout. First, an affair of dustbins, and then a farce. But perhaps that was the devil really was, the spirit of dustbins. And God? God in this case would be simply the absence of dustbins. Again, everything in negative ideals. And maybe he's not entirely wrong, though it does seem to be the opposite of general Christian belief. Prominent Christian apologist C.S. Lewis argues that goodness is the only true essential, that evil is not a separate and equal power, as many of the dualistic models would suggest, but rather is an absence of goodness. Thus, it is not a thing, it is no thing. Spandrel, though, seems to be advocating the opposite of that here. Instead, all that is, is stupidity, and as he says, dustbins, the clearly real-as-experienced sordid human absurdities. Then, God is what's in the absence? There are people who suggest that God is in the silence, or at least it's the only place that he can be heard truly outside of the human noise that we've clouded reality with, in the same way that stars are visible when we remove the light pollution of our own imposition. So we remove our noisy dirtiness. Is God there? It'll be an interesting premise. 
if, in fact, Spandrel actually listens to his own words here and tests that. So far, the sordid stupidity of his evil actions continues to add noise pollution so much that he wouldn't be able to hear the consequences of God anyway. We'll see if he ever is still enough to listen. But even then, like he seems to almost recognize here, the absence of God's response to him, and wouldn't that be just a fitting answer? No answer at all? If he desires the answer to justify himself and everything that's happened, if he needs an answer to support his determinism, if he acts to offend against God in order to foolishly taunt God into responding, wouldn't that just be him winning over God? Wouldn't that still be a complete and total rejection of what his Kierkegaard might call the moment here? Faith requires a breakdown in the rational, not a rational answer to it. For God to respond would be a negation of the paradox of the call to have faith. Spandrel precisely occupies the demonic for failing to recognize this. God's response to his lack of faith and his need for an answer is the answer. It is not giving him one. It's intrinsically like the man that it's happening to, a man who needs answers to not get one. Honestly, all of this is why Spandrel is the best character in the book. It's complex, it's nuanced, and oddly, it's almost kind of noble in a weird, twisted way. He's so close. But close in an infuriating and abhorrent way. It's all the more infuriating because he's so close. You just want to shake him. There are some clear indications, though, about the logical conclusions of everything, and he's dropped a variety of hints here. If his path is as determined as it seems, you as reader should see pretty clearly where this is going to go from here. If the key is ramping things up, there are only so many things that are more evil than manipulating another human being. So we'll see where it goes. Man, that was fun. I've been looking to lay out this argument for probably what feels like forever at this point, so it's been pretty satisfying to do so here today. So hopefully you enjoyed that even half as much as I enjoyed putting it together for you. Uh, there are a lot of resources here, and I've even supplied a little bit of my own stuff here as well, so if you're looking to go beyond the standard handouts, you see a few of my own papers um, that are connected to this week's episode if you're interested in looking at any of the ideas a little bit further. But I'll see you next week. Uh, we'll be going over one of the most important passages in the book on page 300, um, and Huxley starting to break a little bit of the fourth wall and telling us what he's really after in this novel of ideas. So as always, I'm Stacy Cabrera, and this has been Fill in the Details. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you.